Welcome to In the Movement Podcast, a podcast discussing all things happening in the credit union movement. Each episode will feature leaders talking history, current affairs, and how we can utilize our expertise to educate, communicate, and mobilize, all to better serve our movement. Here are your hosts, Chris Kem, Austin DeBay. Welcome to another edition of In the Movement Podcast. I am Chris Kim. And I'm Austin DeBay. Austin, today we have a special guest who is a member of Congress in our 7th Congressional District in Arizona. His name is Ruben Gallego, and he was elected in... Wait, 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 wait. Before we go, Chris, um, I'm sorry to screw up your, your momentum there, but um, I think the audience should know kind of how we got this guest. Uh, it's not every day that we get a member of Congress that is willing to go on the Credit Union podcast. Why don't you enlighten us on how uh, Mr. Congressman Gallego became a guest on this show? Actually, it's a funny story on how accessible the congressman is. As we were brainstorming for guests for our special episode for the GAC, I could not help but think about our relationship with Congressman Gallego. So I just literally, I blindly just text him out of the blue and I straight up said, hey, boss, you want to do a non-political podcast on advocacy for our In the Movement podcast that we started for the credit union movement. And without hesitation, he, he said yes. And so it just kind of kicked off, obviously, schedules, votes, and everything that, that goes on. And you and you actually hear him today as he speaks talk about, you know, hey, I got to go, guys. <laughs> votes have been called, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because knowing uh, Ruben since he was first elected in the State House in 2010... Well, he's elected in 29, but he served served in 2010. There has been, like, you would say that pretty much anybody that's involved or around politics, no matter if you're Republican or Democrat, probably has Ruben's number in their phone. They have some sort of relationship with Ruben. He's such a accessible person, and he's become a friend of ours over our time working in this area. It's no different than a text we would have sent if we went to a GAC and they texted Ruben and said, hey, we're in town. If you have some time and votes aren't happening in the evening, let's catch up. And we usually do that. And this year we can, obviously. So this was a, a good opportunity. Very grateful to him for taking the time and, and hope you enjoy it. I did want to highlight, Chris, before we get into it, we wanted to keep this as much about his past than anything. And so we didn't really go a lot into the district or his politics. I do think it's important to note for those that aren't from Arizona, or maybe even if you are and you're just not familiar with congressional districts, Ruben is a Democrat. He was elected to Congress in 2016, Chris. I'm sorry if I got that. I I should have had that pulled up before I stated that. He was part of that as state representative. But his district is Congressional District 7, which is a mostly South Phoenix. It's a heavily Democratic district. It was formerly held long-term by uh, Congressman Ed Pastor, who retired and has since passed away. But he's one of those people that, you know, you always knew when he was a state legislator that he had potential to continue on in politics and kind of take that next step. District 7 is perfect for him, and he represents it well. And so very glad to, to have him on to hear his story. He's got a, he's got one of those stories where you're like, oh my God, he's done that too. Not only is he a member of Congress, but he's also done that. He's also done that. And uh, he'll touch on a little bit of all those things on this episode. Yeah, it's it's kind of unique to hear, 
directly from a member of Congress, specifically when we're not talking about politics per se. And this is very much a non-political conversation. It's always, you know, when we take our members back to GAC and they have different experiences with members of Congress, some are very by the book schedule in and out while it's an experience to be up there and lobby our members of Congress. It's unique to find a member of Congress who sits down, is very pragmatic, will listen to your issue, whether they agree with you or not. They, they already, may already have a mindset of where they may be leaning on their boat or where they believe. But what's unique about members of Congress like Ruben, he actually is very open and has a, a very good dialogue with our members who show up. And it's, it's always interesting to see, like you have a couple of advocates who may attend one Hill visit. And they're with that member of Congress who's by the book and very hard to have a conversation with. And then they go have a conversation with Congressman Gallego and they walk away saying, you know, I either agree or disagree with their politics, but man, that conversation was pretty useful. And I felt like I contributed to something. And that's what we, you know, when thinking about when we wanted to do this podcast and who we would invite for our special GAC episode it's getting the inside of, of a member of Congress like Ruben. So I can't wait for our listeners just to hear the simplicity of his life. He does talk fast about how we got his story, but I think with as fast as a podcast is, you'll get a lot out of understanding the background of what drives this guy and, and, and why we have such a good relationship with him because he is so open and accessible to us as far as understanding issues. Yeah. And you'll hear towards the end, he talks about he he does have to get away for a vote. So he did have to leave a little bit earlier, but we, we, I think we still got about 30 minutes interview with him around that time. So very courteous with this time display, kind of being in the middle of votes. So let's get after it. We are joined here today with Congressman Ruben Gallego. And Congressman, I'm going to have, uh, I'm probably going to accidentally call you Ruben. I don't mean it as a sign of disrespect. <laughs> no, it's okay. It, but you know, it's for years. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so I apologize in advance. I don't want to mean to disrespect you there, but I don't know if you do this, Ruben, but there are people in my life that, you know, around my same age that I, I don't compare myself to, but I compare where I am in my life versus somebody else. And you are always one of those people. And I always fail because I'm thinking, okay, where, (laughs) (laughs) what have I accomplished so far at at 40, 41-ish? And when I compare my story to yours, it it doesn't even compare. And and I think for us today, that's one of the main part of asking you to be on. And we appreciate you taking the time, but we wanted to hear about your story. And if you have a time, love to hear about prior to ever getting into public service, either the state capitol wow. and Congress, just to talk a little bit about your background prior to that. Well, I mean, prior to, to getting in the state house, I was really more of an administrator. I was working for a chief of staff, I was a chief of staff to a city council member in the city of Phoenix. Prior to that, I was more of a volunteer on political campaigns and was in the military. So I went to college, went to Harvard, left college, joined the Marine Corps, came back and then did a tour of doing Iraq. And then I moved to Phoenix and really just the war, I would say, is what got me the mostly involved in, in politics. The Iraq war was not very good to me and my my unit. And I think there was a lot of things that went wrong, first of all, with us being there, but also how the war was conducted. And, you know, I think I've always just had some really good luck and just really good timing. And I've been able to take advantages of openings that I saw and 
and I moved fast. And that's why I think, you know, I, I got to where I was at a young age. And look, I, I think you're right. Everyone compares themselves to somebody like, you know, I, I was joking with uh, my fiance because I think we were watching the or reading the biography of, of uh, Napoleon. And, and I think by the age of 40, he'd already created the, the first French empire. <laughs> so, you know, you can't win them all. You know, you just got to be happy with where you are. That's right. Hey, Congressman, this is Chris Kim. It's great to have you on. I know you're extremely busy, so we appreciate you taking time to jump on. And, and with our limited time, we'll try and follow up with what we can. But one of the things that intrigued me most as a veteran was what was the switch? Because you joined prior to 9-11. What was the driving force on deciding to, to be a United States Marine? I always wanted to do it. That's the funny part. I think I made the mistake of I got on this track in high school where I was very focused and I had to get straight A's and I had to assure myself that I was going to get good scores on the ACT and the SATs because I needed to go to, to college, right? I grew up very poor. And I was so focused on getting to college and, and getting into Harvard that I never really knew what I was getting myself into and, and, or why I wanted to do it, right? Which is, you know, in retrospect, kind of dumb. I, I could have gone to a lot of great schools that probably would have been less stressful for me. But, you know, it is what it is. But I, what I really deep down in my heart wanted to do was to serve in the military. And I convinced myself not to do it. I should have graduated high school, joined the Marine Corps, do it just for four years, and then go to college. Instead, I forced myself into this role where everyone expected me to go to Harvard. Everyone thought I was going to go to Harvard. Therefore, I should go to Harvard. And it just was bad results. I didn't do well at Harvard my first couple of years. Actually, eventually got kicked out of Harvard. I went and that's when I joined the Marine Corps. I'm like, you know what? Life is telling me to change. So I, I went and I changed. I joined the Marine Corps. And then after I was done with my initial training, I went back and reapplied to Harvard. And this time I had my life together and graduated eventually. But you're saying that uh, Harvard was not your safety school like the, the movie Rushmore. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you're in good company. I know there's some very high profile figures that either left Harvard, uh, dropped out of Harvard, but you you ultimately did go back and, and got yep. your degree from there. So yep. why did everybody think Harvard was for you just because you had talked about it so much growing up? And Yeah, exactly. Well, look, growing up, people from my high school do not go to Harvard. They go to good schools, state schools, but there aren't many people from Evergreen Park Community High School that end up at Harvard. It's a very working class area. And certainly poor Latino men from, you know, single parent home don't likely end up at Harvard. I was extremely focused from, I mean, from day one, basically, I think of high school, because I recognized that I had two problems. Number one, I'm broke. And there was no way for my family to be able to afford for me to go to college. And so I had to get really, really great grades to do that. And number two, in order for me to get there, I have to deal with the fact that this school, this good public school, doesn't produce Ivy Leaguers. And that required me to have a very intense focus. You know, I did research, I called up, you know, random Harvard students through the student directory, asked them what they did, all this kind of nerdy stuff. And when my goal was focusing on Harvard, because if, if I can get myself in a position where I'm competitive to get at least into Harvard, it means that I'm going to be able to get into a lot of other schools and be able to receive scholarships. So it wasn't necessarily that I thought it was going to happen, but I knew that if I shot for it, anything short of that would still be successful. So that's how exactly I proceeded. And 
what really happened, what, what inspired me about Harvard was that I went to a summer enrichment program. I can't remember what it was. And I met a lot of students and they were very bright kids. And I would sit up and I would debate with them and about different subject matters. And they would all already be talking about schools and they would all be saying, you know, hey, I, I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to go to Georgetown. This is like freshman year high school. Probably. And they're already talking about their future. And I realized that, you know, no one around me talks that way. No one in my life ever said, you know, I can't wait till you go to Harvard or anything like that. So I realized like, number one, I was just as smart as these rich kids. And if these rich kids are saying like, they should go to Harvard, they should go to Princeton, that means I should have the same opportunity. And I felt it was my right that I had the same opportunity as these, you know, other kids. That's a great perspective. You know, a lot of people don't think about that in context when you think about how you're raised or what your surroundings are and how they influence you on a day-to-day basis. So that's pretty powerful when you think about it. When we look at this and we invited you on, meeting you early on in in your career, the one thing that stood out to me as an advocacy guy was your pure passion and your desire to, to speak out. And the biggest reason we wanted to talk to you was that advocacy and where it comes from, being a chief advocate. You know, we talk about in our line of work that people have to stand up because other, otherwise people will speak out mm-hmm. for you. Exactly. So for you, what took you to the journey to become a vocal advocate for your community? I know you talked about the Iraq war started yeah. it, but you eventually moved to Arizona and then something, there was a trigger moment. I know I had a trigger moment. But what was your? I trigger? think the big trigger moment was, was a couple of things, but it was really building up to SB 1070. If you remember Arizona in 2006, Arizona 2006 and Arizona 2021 are entirely different state. In 2006, there was these really rampant and I would say discriminatory laws that were designed to, I think, really split Arizona in half. And though they claimed it was targeting, you know, undocumented people, it caused this tenseness in the air. And I remember, you know, hearing horror stories of, you know, veterans and the American Legion Post that I belong to who were born in the United States, served in, you know, Vietnam and the Korean War, and were getting yelled at at malls by people telling them to go back to their country, right? And so, you know, 2006, you know, it starts, 2008 gets even worse. 2010, it really boils to the top of SB 1070. And what I remember thinking, the reason this is happening it's not necessary just because they believe in it as in the opposition. It's because we as a Latino community were that weak, politically weak, that people wanted to, to use this kind of politically divisive rhetoric and laws. And, and I looked around and I'll be honest, a lot of the political leaders at that point were weak. They just, there's no way that anybody would be afraid of them and their political clout. And I decided that it's time to step up. You know, I, I had this great career. At this point, I was the chief of staff of the vice mayor of Phoenix. At that age, I was making really great money. <laughs> and, you know, I just decided to up and quit and really dedicate a whole year to making sure I win my $24,000 a year job as a state rep. I remember sitting at Park Central. It was 2010 during the time you were campaigning for your first race and uh, meeting you. And for somebody that had been dealing and working in Arizona politics for about six years prior to meeting you, you were the first person, and I'm going to sound a little bit like a fanboy here, so I apologize, Ruben, but um, <laughs> okay. just having that young, fresh face, and you really did make your party, in my opinion, very relevant, much more relevant than it had been in the past. It was heavily controlled by 
the Republicans prior, and it, it still is a Republican-controlled legislature, but there was something about your class and even the other people that were in leadership at the time mm-hmm. that, that really- like Chad Campbell, person. yeah. Yeah, Chad Campbell. Kirsten was still in the Senate. Kirsten in the Senate, yep. You just, it was kind of that new class of Democrats. And I'm curious, do you see that your generation, our generation now on the federal side, kind of having that same mentality compared to how it was at the state legislature? I think we're getting there. I mean, you know, the Congress is is fairly tilted to you're older here and there's benefits of seniority, everything else like that. But you are starting to see the younger members of Congress. And when I say young, like younger than 50, <laughs> taking really taking over and really shaping the Democratic Party and even shaping even the younger Republicans are starting to shape the Republican Party, too. And I certainly feel this is not my seventh year. And I feel like I'm an old man compared to some of the, the men and women that have joined me now where some of them are in their you know, late 20s. But I do feel like a lot of us have been moving the ball forward. And I think the, the perspective of how we govern has changed. I think how people look at Democrats is starting to change now because once Biden, I think, is done with his administration, hopefully eight years from now, there's going to be a, a new class of Democrats that's come up that no one's really ever seen on the national scale. I mean, for so long, Democratic Party has been either a Clinton-Obama party. If you think about it, essentially since 1992, it's been the Clinton-Obama people uh, and now the Biden people, but they're all kind of connected that have been in one way or the other in charge of the Democratic Party. And when Biden leaves eight years from now, you're going to see a, a whole new party, I'd say, that's coming up. And the people that are in the party right now, the young people that are leading it are going to be those leaders. Yeah. And I think one thing that, that you do very well, Ruben, and, and a lot of your colleagues do as well that are in the generation, and it's not even just the Republican Democrat thing, is your accessibility. I feel like you specifically too is just I feel like there's a lot of people that are just friends with you because you're accessible to them. I have never seen a member of Congress in Arizona that has gives out people their, their cell phone number and they text them and you personally get back to them and things like that. Oh, um, it drives my staff nuts. <laughs> I'm sure it does. I mean, is that just your personality or is that a way that you early on decided that's how I want to govern? You know what happened? It's because my first real political job was as chief of staff. I had to be responsible to a lot of community leaders. And so the best way for me to be a chief of staff was, you know, I gave my phone number to every community leader in my district, you know, when I was working. And so they would just text me problems that they're having with the city. And then I would just take it and I realized like, wow, this is actually a really good way to know what's going on in my district. And to this day, you know, it's funny. I mean, that was 2000. And well, think about this. That's 2008 that I had that job. Those community leaders still have my phone number and they still text me, you know, even when they have city problems. And, you know, it's a great feeling to still be connected to my community. And look, what's the worst that could happen? Someone texts you. If you're too busy, you just don't take it. Right. But, but a lot of times it's good information you're getting and you're just going to be more responsive and more in tune with your district by doing that. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that approach. We always talk to our members about different members of Congress, elected officials, and what's the real key thing when we look at supporting anyone for public office. And for us on our side, it's more of the effect of, can someone be pragmatic to the sense of what our issues are and and how it's going to help the communities is the main thing. And two, can we have a dialogue? Whether you agree or disagree, can mm-hmm. we have a, just a genuine conversation about what the real issues are? And with that, I have a follow-up question. 
from an elected official side and we're telling our advocates on what elected officials are looking for, what does real effective advocacy look like to you that helps you sit down and say, well, you know, I never thought about it that way. Or you might be struggling on an issue because you, you may be lobbied on a hundred different issues every single day. Mm-hmm. Something's got to stick out. What What is effective advocacy from an individual or an, uh, you know, an awareness group, whoever is talking to you about a subject? Always bringing somebody from my district really matters. Number one, because it's it's important for me to to be able to relate what's going on. And so, if you bring someone to me, you know, a credit union member, it matters more to me. Like, oh, someone from my district, someone that is going to explain to me how the importance of credit unions to them, what they have done, what they do. And so, obviously, I could always get the talking points from you, Chris. But it's better if that person is there and they're able to relate to me and tell me, like, I live on such and such street and. You know, that really matters too, because like I walk my district a lot. And if someone tells me their streets, I likely have hit their door at one point or another. And so someone comes and tell me like, I live on, you know, 16th Street in Bethany, Bethany Home, or actually the opposite would be like 19th Avenue in Bethany Home. And I belong to the credit union. This is what's so important to me. That's going to stick in my mind versus anything else. And, you know, really having a personal story matters, right? The statistics are statistics, right? And, and I deal with a lot of statistics all day. But if you come to me with a anecdote, a story of how this has really positively affected your life, I will remember that. And when all things are being are competing for my attention, that's what is going to make make me talk to my staff like, "Hey, why don't we why don't we take care of that problem that you know that woman brought up?" I would like to point out that we did not mention this ahead of time, but you correctly said credit union member. Uh, you know, sometimes we be it then people say credit union customer, and it, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, "Oh, it's it's a member," but you you knew. Uh, Right away that it was members, so applauding you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Just to, out of curiosity, Ruben, who inspires you? Who do you look at from uh, either professionally or personally? Uh, it could be past, it could be someone who's no longer with us. This, who inspires you? Well, I mean, John Lewis was probably one of the most inspiring people that I have ever met and worked with, and he was such a pure soul. I mean, when I found out that he had died, it really really hurt. I mean, I, I started crying, you know, in my living room with my fiance because we just knew what a great man he was. He would always he would see me on the floor and he'd always kind of try to buck me up and had a really funny sense of humor. I'll give you guys a good example. Before I think I'm going to have to leave soon about, but I'll give you a really good example. I don't know if you guys remember a couple of years ago, the Democrats staged a sit-in to protest the fact that Republicans were not going to do anything on gun control after another mass shooting. And John Lewis was uh, on the floor of the house and I was sitting right next to him. And there was rumors that the Capitol Police was going to come in and drag us out forcefully, you know, with riot gear and everything else like that. John leans over to me and says, you know, brother, there is power in nonviolence. And I knew what he was trying to get at. Like, there is power in nonviolence. Like, you, you can make a great point. And, and he was, you know, trying to explain to us not to fight in case they come in. And I dryly had my dry sense of humor. I said, I don't disagree, Mr. Lewis, but you got to understand, like, I'm a Marine. I'm the opposite of nonviolence. If someone puts their hands on me, there's going to be violence. And, you know, without missing a beat, Mr. Lewis says, like, everyone thinks that they're violent. But let me tell you, when you get that baton across the head, you're quickly going to be nonviolent. <laughs> and when he said that, I thought, you know, this is the man that 
got beat up trying to integrate, you know, countertops, got nearly killed at the Selma crossing. This is a person that I should just shut up and listen to. And he's, I mean, sorely missed right now, sorely, sorely missed. It's painful even to think that he isn't here. We mightily miss him here. It's good to hear those influences. It kind of leans me into my next question. As a father myself of seven, what have you learned about yourself since becoming a father? I've learned that I'm actually very sensitive. It's funny, you know, you talk to people and they'd say like, Ruben, it's a nice going guy, but he's, he's kind of rough around the edges, right? Like, I, I'm not afraid to scrap with somebody verbally now. I don't, I don't do violence, but verbally. And, you know, and I'm not afraid to, you know, to, to yell at somebody if I have to get something done. I realized though that I'm actually, I have a side of me that is extremely sweet and sensitive and I'm very prideful of it. I will be in a Zoom call or a video conference, you know, yelling at some four-star general because he screwed something up. But then if my son just kind of pops in, I totally change modes. And actually that just happened a couple of days ago when I was doing some interviews for a new position. I was having a very, you know, stern talk with my staff about what we need to be doing and, and how we need to focus and how the new hires can affect that. And my son had accidentally hit his knee on a on a table, a dining room table, and he came running over and jumped in my arms and said, was saying awi awi and he, he asked me to kiss his awi and of course I did and my tone changed. So it's a side of me that I, I had not really had really until my son came along. Children change everything. Yeah. Even my voice. Like it's weird when I talk to my son, I had this totally different voice. Yeah. I would say, yeah, you sound so much more mature now, Ruben, since you're a father. <laughs> I mean, it helps you prioritize what really matters. Yeah. Like when you, when you're, when you don't have a child and you don't really have anything to kind of look towards the future that you need to plan for, I'm not saying people without children are, are irresponsible, but at least for me, number one, everything was important. I had to do every event. I had to do everything because like, that's what I needed to advance my career. And now not everything is important. It actually is just as important that I spend time with my son as it is for me to go to that one reception versus when I was younger, I'd be, like, I'd be at that reception because I needed to make sure I was shaking hands and uh, you know, talking to people. And so it really does make things more efficient. I tell my staff, like anything that I'm doing, especially it's when it's after work hours, it needs to be worthwhile because you're taking time away from my family. And like that, I can't replace. I can replace a lot of things, but like when I lose time with my family, I don't get it back. And so it really helps a lot. And I, it's actually weird enough, I think I've become a better politician, even though I have the stresses of, of raising a child. You're absolutely spot on. Yeah. My, my firstborn daughter changed my entire perspective on life. And it's good to see that family means something to you because particularly in our movement, our credit unions mm-hmm. working to serve those communities and those families uh, specifically. So it's good to hear that personal side that a lot of people don't get to hear. Ruben, I know you said that you, uh, you have to go vote here in a second. Yeah, they just wanna, called it. Yeah. Just one last thing. You enjoy what you do. I think you seem like you do. Being a member of Congress, it seems like it's something that you thoroughly enjoy. Is that accurate? I do. It's absolutely, it's just different, you know, because it's not really work, right? It's kind of like the Marine Corps, really. I mean, I, in the Marine Corps, I worked crazy hours and got un- underpaid, right? No, in Congress, I worked crazy hours and some would say I'm overpaid, right? But you do it because you're passionate about service. And that's what I've kind of taken to this. I'm really passionate about my service and I've been able to balance it out with my family requirements and service to my country. 
Now, at some point, you know, I my biggest service is to my family. I have to make sure that I, you know, I'm a good father and I hope to have more children in the future. And if I can't do that balance correctly, then then it's that's probably when I leave politics and, and become a serve my family instead. But right now, I, I love what I do. I love that I get to advocate for Arizona, advocate for working people, and I get to still be fly home in time and be able to spend time with my son. That's well said. Ruben, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for your your friendship. We will miss you this year. We usually try to have a little bit of time with you just on the personal side every once in a while when we get to DC in, in our late February, early March. But due to COVID, we can't be there. So we will we will see you when we can get there. But taking the time for this podcast, Chris and I are very grateful to you for this. Thank you, guys. I hope to see you guys soon. Take care, Ruben. All right. Bye-bye. Well, Austin, that was a great piece. You know, we did about 30 minutes there and it was interesting because when we normally have a hike the hill meeting with a member of Congress in DC, we'd usually get anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes 30 if we're lucky. And I think we got a good snapshot of personally on the back end of what makes Congressman Gallego who he is. It seemed a little fast, but we probably could have spent another hour and a half just talking to him, expanding on all the little things that he kind of referenced and talked. It was powerful to hear his life choices, his choice to to serve as a United States Marine and, and become a veteran, his challenges with making decisions on how he went to Harvard and how he, it's okay to make a mistake, back out and go back in and push forward. It was interesting to hear his passion on on the trigger on what drove him to decide, I'm going to jump in and be an advocate. And then it was really cool to hear his story about what flipped a switch on his mentality on becoming a father. And then hearing the personal story that he shared uh, with Congressman Lewis, which unless you're in those chambers and you're talking to historical figures like Representative Lewis, you would never understand the background or the perspective that these folks have when they go and serve as, as an elected official. Yeah. And we talked a lot about, or actually we, we dedicated the whole podcast and purposely so to talk about his his backstory, where he came from. Uh, a lot of time was spent prior to Congress. Some of it was spent about the dynamics between state legislature versus Congress. We didn't go into partisan stuff and we didn't go into credit union issues. And, and you know, if we had an hour, maybe we would have focused on specifics, but we have had those conversations with Ruben and we will continue to have those conversations with Ruben. For us on this podcast, we wanted to kind of dig deeper. Something that we do not advocate to do in a congressional meeting is not talk about the member's backstory. We want to talk about credit union issues. But this was just a different forum, a different way to get to know somebody who Chris and I have got to know personally, someone who I admire tremendously. And it's not a, an admire because of a partisan thing. It's just somebody who... I personally, and this is why I asked that last question, is I personally see him as just enjoying his job. And he, he brings a passion behind it that I, I can't explain. I also was really... It was a question that kind of just came out of the blue. It wasn't something I had planned for. But one thing I just... When I think of Ruben, it's just his accessibility and how much he puts himself out there to allow you to text him or, or myself to text him on an issue or going to a, coming on this podcast and, and responding. It's, it's a really a different mindset. Somebody who, when you when I first met him, was like, "Man, I'm excited about the future of politics because if this is how elected officials are going to operate, 
it's amazing. And I'm not saying that because he's a Democrat or anything. It's it's just like a, it's a way of doing politics that I, I, I hope more elected officials do and have that sort of connection with with the community and advocacy groups like credit unions. And so really do appreciate him taking the time for us and great job, Chris, getting it set up for us. No, and I can't agree with you more. You know, we, you look at both sides of the aisle, there's probably a quick growing list that our members of Congress, just like Congressman Gallego, and we, in our three states that we represent, we, we're pretty fortunate to have a handful of them in, in our delegation that are readily accessible and they're easy to talk to. Maybe we should try and target a couple more and see if we can't get them on both sides of the aisle to see the true perspective of the background of some of these elected officials that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So we, we got another one in the books and I'm looking forward to this week of the GAC. I hope this becomes a, something that we can look back on and bring it back in, in a couple hundred episodes and see, and see where we're at. But on behalf of my co-host, Austin DeBay and myself, until next time, we'll see you Care. soon. Well, that's all for today's episode of In the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening, and thank you for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to your favorite podcast listing app so you never miss an episode, or visit us on Twitter at MWCUA.